Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, you'll hear stories about an American tourist's encounter with the secret police in 1970s Iran, overcoming hate in the grocery store, an Eastern African girl's first experience in America, and an American tourist in Paris just trying to find some relief. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on March 18th, 2019 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, Stranger in a Strange Land. Today, we hear from four of those storytellers. Our first story comes to us from Dick King, who, in the 1970s, is traveling in Iran and has an uncomfortable encounter with the Savak, the Shah's secret police. Dick calls his story, Being with the People in the Land of the Lynchpin. Thanks for listening. Well, it is April 1975. I finished my time with the Peace Corps, and while I was there, I worked for the Afghan Tourist Organization. So now I'm headed back home over land, but so I'm a tourist. So I leave Afghanistan on a shuttle bus and head toward Iran. I get to the no man's land border, get off the shuttle bus and have to walk to the Iranian fence. And I see some border agents. As I get closer, I notice they have weapons. They have pistols, they have some automatic rifles. Behind them is a machine gun nest. So it's a little bit disconcerting, and I get to the fence, and there's three guys that meet me. They take my backpack, lift up my shirt, they take my money belt, which has my passport, my wallet, my traveler's checks, and then they hold my hands up. Off comes my shirt, off come my pants, off come my t-shirt, so I'm almost naked. They then point to a tunnel. I guess I'm supposed to walk there, so I will go to the tunnel. It's concrete block, and I'm very disconcerted and nervous, but I enter the tunnel, the guy points me to go, 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 and uh, walk through the tunnel. There's a few windows, and there's guards looking at me through the windows. The tunnel's leaking water from the top, so I'm getting a little wet. Finally, I reach the end of the tunnel, and there's my backpack and the rest of my stuff. I check it all, and it's all there, but I'm very disconcerted and worried that, where am I at? What's going to happen? There's a shuttle bus now that will take me to the Iranian city of Mashhad, which is one of the greatest pilgrimage cities in all of Islam. So I get on the shuttle bus and, and start going, and there's a few other tourists there uh, who didn't have to go through the same agony that I did to enter the country. We start talking, and I tell them about my experience, about the border guards, and they said, those weren't border guards, that was the Savak. I said, the what? The Savak, the Shah's secret police. They run the border, they run the country. So I, they said, be very careful, be very careful. We get to Mashhad, it's later in the afternoon, find a place to stay, there's several wonderful mosques in the city. The night lights come on and highlight the minarets in the mosques, so it's quite scenic. And then the morning comes, and I go to the bus station and take a bus, get a bus ticket to go to Tehran. So I get on the bus, and I'm the only foreigner on the bus. It's full, but the rest of the people on the bus are Iranians. And there's no place to sit on the bus. So I'm, do I have to stand on a nine-hour bus ride? A couple of Iranians look at me and they signal me to come. 
They've moved a couple of people and they've, given, they've opened a seat for me. So they've made me feel welcome. And the bus leaves Mashhad and heads, and it's kind of dry land. It's, dry, it's uh, sort of desert-like, not very fertile. But in the distance, you start to see a little greenery and a few hills go farther, and those become more of a mountain. Pretty soon, we're driving up a pass. And the bus gets to the top of the pass, and I look to the north. There's the Caspian Sea. Incredibly gorgeous view. And the bus starts to drop off of the, the pass, and we head to Tehran. It's about a nine-hour bus trip and all. And we get to Tehran, and I go to the ticket office for the bus station. Where can I stay? Where should I stay? And they direct me to a student hostel just a short ways away. So I walk over there, check in, go up to the second floor, and there's probably 15 other young people while finding a cheap place to stay overnight, put my sleeping bag on the, on the floor, and that's my reservation, my sleeping bag on the floor. The next morning, I get up, and I start to explore Tehran. It's an interesting city. It's uh, very scenic, very well built. Buildings are very clean, well done. I'm walking around. Here are some young Iranians, and they look at me, and they come over, and they start talking to me, and I, in Afghanistan, I could speak Farsi, which is a sort of a dialect of Persian. So I start to speak that, and the Iranians kind of look down on Farsi as not very good language. But we could start to talk, and then they, they ask me, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from America. Well, they pat me on the back, they're, they're smiling. They said, welcome, welcome, we love Americans. And then one of them reaches over and grabs my blue jeans, my Levi jeans, which I don't have on tonight. And uh, I want to buy those. I want to buy those. I pay you good money for them. I said, well, I can't afford to sell them because it's all I have. This and a pair of shorts for the whole trip. They talk it over and they look at what they said. Next time you come back to Ron, bring lots of jeans with you. <laughs> Apparently, those were really a hot item at that time. And uh, a couple more days, I go to the museums in Tehran. The people there are always full of help, uh, where you want to go, what you want to see. It's a, it's a wonderful experience, and I enjoyed my stay there. I then get on a bus and next go to the city of Isfahan, which is in central Iran. It's um, one of the major points of the Silk Road. You had Saudi Arabians, you had Egyptians, you had Europeans, the Chinese, all of them trading items in Isfahan. At one time, it was one of the world's largest cities. There are five bridges over the largest river in Iran that borders Isfahan, and these bridges were started to be built about the second century AD. There's one of the bridges that is uh, 33 arches. Amazing. So I walk each of the bridges over the river and I explore the scenery and enjoy myself. And again, if I need directions, I ask an Iranian, no problem. The next day, I decided I need to visit the Blue Mosque or the Shah Mosque, the King Mosque. It's pretty well known as one of the classic examples of Islamic architecture and design in all of the world. So I go there and it's, start, it's startling. It's, it's um, the blue tile, the, the different colors of tile, the mosaic, and the uh, calligraphy, the minarets. There's four minarets that go way up into the air. 
And I walk around and around it, and then there's a major entrance to the mosque and a big courtyard inside, but I'm a little hesitant to go in. And then the Iranian sees me, signals me to come in, points me, and I walk around the courtyard, and I can look in and see all the different excellent, wonderful art, very stunning. And um, again, the sun is shining, and the tile is reflecting the sun. So it was a wonderful experience. It's about midday, and time for lunch. So I tell the Iranian thank you for the for Tashakur, for the visit, and head out and we'll go a little ways. And Isfahan is also famous for its grand bazaar. Well, I didn't know where that was at, but I looked down the street, and there's a whole lot of people in the street gathered around. It's an outdoor market of bazaar. So I head there, and gee, there's carpets for sale. There's you name it. There's all kinds of things for sale. But I look at that, and uh, I'm hungry. So I go to a restaurant, not a restaurant, a food booth. And there's naan coming out of the oven, and there's charcoal, and they're making tacos, and it smells wonderful. So I uh, start to talk to the guy running the place and order some lunch with that and this, and then I hear a sound. I hear a sound. <laughs> louder, louder, louder. Well, I was in the Army before I went uh, to the Peace Corps, and I knew what military helicopters were because I rode in them. I look up, and here come about 20 American helicopters flying low over the mosque and over the bazaar. I'm stunned. I'm about ready to walk away. The louder and louder it gets, the, the Iranians are post like this, and they turn their back. They're, they're mad. I want to leave. The guy at the food booth puts his hand on my shoulder, tells me, you're okay. You're with us. I also remember attending a lecture by Henry Kissinger in Afghanistan a few months before I left where he called the Shah of Iran the linchpin of American foreign policy in the Middle East. And that makes me shake my hand. After that, I go to uh, Shiraz, which is uh, near the Persian Gulf, and from there I visit uh, Persepolis, the ceremonial capital of the ancient Persian Empire. That's about 30 miles from Shiraz. We'll go there, and uh, there's... Uh, Fabulous ruins. It goes back to the, to the like the uh, fourth century B.C., the Persian Empire. Well, I took a shuttle there, and it gets about five o'clock in the afternoon, and we walked over it, everything, and looked at it, and all kinds of interesting things. And then there's uh, a shuttle that leaves, so I was about ready to go. Well, there's a couple of Europeans. There's a Brit and a German and a Frenchman, and they look at me and they, "Where are you going?" I said, "Well." I gotta catch the shuttle, I'm going back to Shiraz. But, no, no, don't leave now. Stay for the night show, the sound and light show. We're gonna to go to that. I said, oh, so we go get a bite to eat and things come back, sit in the bleachers, the sun sets, and here come the lights on the ancient ruins that have been so well kept. They light it up, it's gorgeous. It highlights each of the architectural features. It's stunning, I'm just amazed. The lights go down, and all of a sudden, the, the, the Iranian people at the site, all of the ones that were running it, they turn their back away from Persepolis, from the ceremonial palace. Up pops a big screen. It's the Shah of Iran telling us he is the Shah in Shah, 
the king of kings. He's basically saying, I'm related to Darius I, the Persian Empire, back way before Alexander the Great came and destroyed Persepolis. But the young Iranians turned their back to the Shah on the screen. Once again, I remember Henry Kissinger's lecture, the linchpin of American foreign policy in the Middle East. Thank you. Thanks, Dick. Dick King was born and raised on the High Line. He is a sugar beater from Chinook, Montana. Dick attended the University of Montana and received a master's degree in American history in 1971, after which he became a Peace Corps volunteer and served four years in Afghanistan. He returned to Montana in 1975 and married Tova Elvram in 1980. They have one son, Alex. Dick has worked in a community and economic development and moved to Missoula in 2000. Our next story comes to us from Ibrahim Mina, who encounters a racist at a local grocery store in Missoula, Montana. The encounter causes him to reflect with empathy despite his anger and hurt and responds with love and kindness. He calls his story, What's Wrong With My Skin? Thanks for listening. Hi. Let's start this telling you that I am super glad, very glad, that I have survived officially three years, three winters in this <laughs> land. I am not going to talk about my first experience uh, in the snowball, though. My history begins in January 4 of this year. I was grocery shopping with a friend of mine. Her name is Ismara. Her and I went to the grocery shopping. I uh, told her that I was going for another uh, side of the shop, and she went to another side of the shop. When I was looking at the shelf, Suddenly, I felt someone that was coming. As is natural, I put myself out, letting that person pass. But that person didn't pass. I wait, he didn't pass. I start thinking that he was trying to provoke me. So I left and wait for about a minute so that person passed. He didn't pass. He stayed exactly in the part of the aisle where I was. And I started looking at the shelf. So needing to buy some sponge, I went back to the place where I was. And I started looking at the shelf choosing the kind of sponge I wanted to buy. <laughs> well, that person told me that those sponges were good for me, that I should use them to take a shower and use them as much as I can to take my skin off. I was speechless. A lot of things happened 
in my mind in that moment. My mind was super confused. I felt vulnerable. I didn't know what, how to act. And I remember in that moment, a very bad experience happened to me last uh, spring when someone stopped his car and started shouting at me, super mad. I was super scared because he told me that I was a black rat and I shouldn't leave. Having little experience didn't help me because I learned about racism by news, by book, by teachers, but living this kind of experience feels super different. So I went immediately to um, see where my friend Ismara was. I told her what happened. She was very sad as well. She told me that she was worried about herself because she's from Venezuela as well. But she started calming, calming me down. She told me, you are a great person, and if he, that person knows you very well, she wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. So she started telling me beautiful things about how the person I was and making me feel better. I was so sensitive, so I left. But I still left her for a little bit and continued grocery shopping. I was thinking, what should I do? I have to do something with this. This is not right. I was feeling mad at the entire situation and super frustrated because I didn't know what to do. Like, I have little knowledge about racism and I also was frustrated with my English. At this point, I think you have realized that my English, yeah, <laughs> need to improve a little bit. So, I started thinking, should I go there and ask what's going on? Uh, what is wrong with my skin? I like that. Or maybe having a conversation to drive him to understand that there are more things that we have in common than the one that we have difference. I didn't do anything. I just went to line up, and after a while, someone passed with a few items in her hand, and I let her go. Well, she was super grateful. After a little while, another old lady came to me, and she told uh, she had a few items as well, and I let her go. She couldn't be more grateful, really. She started talking to me, telling me that she really liked the kind of person I was, that she was looking around if someone offered that. And she was so happy. Actually, she told the cashier that I was so nice, and this is the kind of person we need here. I wasn't talking it at all. She asked me many questions, but I couldn't answer. I was very quiet in that moment. 
but she doesn't have any idea that she brought me back to the real people, the majority of the people I know, and I feel like people is here in Missoula. She brought me back to that beautiful paradise I thought when I first arrived here. Because that's what I remember of Missoula. Beautiful landscape, a bunch of hippies that smile to me <laughs> when I am walking in the street. People that stop me in the, super, uh, in the store and try to have beautiful conversation with me in the bar. That's the real people I really appreciate in Missoula. Also, those that from the very beginning support me when I arrived here, people from Missoula International School, the best environment I have ever had, students, my boss, parents, a lot of them present in this place now, giving me support. Well, after paying, Ismara and I left. I started the car, I started driving, but don't remember anything else. But my friend Ismara on my side, a deep silence. A big sight, and maybe hundred, thousands of tears coming out of my eyes. Thank you. Thanks, Ibrahim. Ibrahim Mina is from Caracas, Venezuela. He holds a bachelor's degree in education and a master's degree in journalism. He has more than 10 years of experience teaching at the primary, secondary, and university levels. He was honored as Teacher of the Year in Caracas in 2014. Ibrahim lived in Malta, Europe for a year and a half and arrived in Missoula in 2016 to teach at Missoula International School. He loves dancing, writing, and traveling. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never heard it before. Go to tellussomething.org to subscribe to the podcast. Thank you. We have two more stories in this episode. Before we get to them, I want to take a moment to thank our title sponsors. CabinetParts.com, the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com. CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. The Good Food Store, supporting western Montana farmers and ranchers for almost 50 years. The Good Food Store supports the local folks creating their own beers, salsa, baked goods, ice cream, and more. Learn more at GoodFoodStore.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Keta House Amphitheater, the Wilma, the Top Hat Lounge, and Ogren Park. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Learn more at logjampresents.com. 
And we are excited to announce our new storytelling workshops. Let Tell Us Something help you craft your own story one-on-one. We offer group workshops with corporate and nonprofit pricing. To schedule a workshop and to learn more, go to tellussomething.org slash workshops. All right, let's get back to the storytelling. Jessie Ballard grew up in East Africa. Her first visit to an American grocery store leaves her amazed at all of the choices of cereal in the U.S. Jessie's story is called The Cereal Isle and Other Strange Places. Thanks for listening. If you're from Africa, why are you white? It's not just a line from Mean Girls, friends. That's the story of my life. Having spent the first 18 years of my life in Kenya, East Africa, and looking the way I do, I've had a bit of identity confusion, some dissonance in my life, and it's been hard for people to figure me out. Every phase of my life has had some confusing aspects as I've thought about who am I and where am I from. Except at the very beginning, things were kind of fun. It was kind of cool being the girl from Africa. In fact, every two years, my family would come to the United States to visit our extended family, and my brother and I were assigned the fabulous task of picking a cereal when we went grocery shopping. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about what a wonderland the grocery aisle, specifically the cereal aisle in an American supermarket is, but to my brother and I, it was amazing. We would just run up and down the aisle, the fluorescent lights illuminating a variety of colors and shapes. Everything was just so vibrant and exciting because in the 80s and 90s in Kenya, East Africa, our cereal choice was Weetabix. Are you familiar with Weetabix? I think it originated in England. Picture a McDonald's uh, hash brown shaped thing, but hard as a brick and brown, okay? You'd have to pour a ton of milk and whack that thing with a spoon to be able to eat it. And then it was tasteless. So imagine my brother and I just overwhelmed by these fabulous choices in the grocery store. My first few years of schooling in Kenya were actually at a British school. So when I arrived there, I was seen as the American. My accent was received as very American. I also had some disconcerting moments there. For example, I told my friends when we were sitting down to have lunch that I brought a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now in British English, jelly is the equivalent of jello. So you can imagine the looks on their faces when I told them that I was going to consume a peanut butter and jello sandwich. I remember just feeling a bit like an oddball there. My voice sounded different, my experiences were different than a lot of the very British students there. And I remember coming home upset and just feeling strange on many occasions. But I got the hang of it, I got a hang of the British English, and then I ended up transferring to an American international school. So there I come in with my Britishisms, and I failed a lot of spelling tests. Neighbor, color, theater, Those are spelled a lot differently. I also made the mistake, and picture this is elementary school, of asking to borrow a rubber in the middle of class. (laughs) Now, 
it wasn't all disconcerting and uncomfortable situations. I have a wonderful memory of sitting under this beautiful flame tree in the middle of campus, huddled together with my friends from all over the world, my friend Carrie from Australia, my friend Martha from Ethiopia, huddled together with our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and we'd have to duck. I mean, I say huddled because we had these big birds called kites, and at lunchtime they would just swoop down and attack anybody and grab their lunch, so we huddled close. We had amazing conversations, and a lot of my great memories are over that time. So that's where I did some elementary, finished up high school, and it was time for college. Now, the reassuring thing about college is that everybody was starting afresh, right? Everybody's figuring out who they are that freshman year. But what is that one question that you always get asked, or that I was asked, first it was, what's your name, then, where are you from? Now, back in that last school, I had also had that experience where we were sitting around, this is an elementary school back in Kenya, and we were asked to come up to this giant world map and put a push pin where we were from. And I watched every one of my classmates go up there and confidently put one of those things up on the map, and they knew exactly where they were from. And I was anticipating my turn to go up there, and I thought, where am I gonna put this push pin? I knew that I was born in some tiny little town in a place called Illinois, but I would struggle to find Illinois on the map, let alone this tiny town. And my life experience said I was from Kenya, but there were people in that room who were Kenyan, and they looked Kenyan. What was I gonna do when I got up there? Where was I gonna put that push pin? And I remember getting up there and choking up, and tears started running down my face, and I couldn't put that pin anywhere, and I just sat down. So flashbacks of that are coming back to me as I'm at college and everyone's asking me, where are you from? And I know they want the pushpin answer, right? They just want to know, oh, um, yeah, you're from Chicago, you're from Butte, wherever you're from. But I couldn't give that answer. So what did I say? <laughs> well, I tried to come up with a quick answer. I knew the answer they weren't looking for. Well, in the 1920s, my great-grandparents came over as missionaries to Kenya, and then my dad was born, or my grandfather was born there. He became a doctor. My dad was born there, and he became an international school student, then a uh, teacher. Then he went to the States. He met my mom. Um, then they had me, and then I moved back to Kenya. So, yeah. <laughs> um, that's not the answer they were looking for. Um, I also got involved in some things at college that made for some other weird cultural experiences. For example, I decided to join an improv troupe, which, uh, for those of you that are familiar with that, is full of pop culture references, right? All this American cultural references. So here's all my castmates making jokes about famous pop stars and actors, and I'm over here making Richard Leakey jokes. <laughs> so college was weird, too. I remember going home for Christmas break, and wherever home was at that time, and coming back, and my roommate making an interesting comment because I'd spent that time with my family and my accent had kind of got mixed up again. And she said, oh yeah, I forgot you were from Kenya. And that really struck me. I thought, what, she forgot? That's such a big part of who I am. And it got me just thinking about who I was at that particular point that she couldn't even, she had forgotten that that's where I was from or where I grew up. <laughs> 
So I made it through college. <laughs> Cue the grad school era of my life. And my husband and I were living in a small town in Illinois, actually. And he was on campus and met two international students, uh, Pauline from Kenya and Zanele from Swaziland. And he made the connection, hey, my wife is from Kenya. You should come over for tea. <laughs> so here they come. And they knock on the door. The door opens. And here's me standing there. <laughs> we ended up having a wonderful time bonding over tea, of course, and all the similarities and differences between the parts of Africa that we'd grown up in. So it was a lovely time. And then, later in our married life, we had the wonderful experience of going back to Kenya. And when I got there, I felt that my heart was at home in so many ways. We even went back to my old American International School campus, and I saw that tree where I used to sit with my friends and kind of ducked instinctively for those kites to swoop down and get me. And there was that red earth that we used to sit in. It's, it's indescribable, you have to go and see it. And it would stain whatever you were wearing when you sat down, and the beautiful bright orange tree color. And it really made me feel at home in my heart. But at the, on that same trip, wherever we drove, wherever we walked, the little Kenyan kids would yell out, Msungo! Msungo! Which is the Kiswahili word for white person, foreigner, other, right? So it was this weird juxtaposition of feeling so at home and yet feeling like this total stranger in this land as well. So I found out that I do have a label, I do have a title. I am what is called a TCK, a third culture kid. And I have taken the culture of my parents, the culture of the country where I grew up, and I've mushed it into this third culture, this other culture. And it's still a learning process for me. It's still a growing process. Uh, I've learned to be more comfortable with being an other, uh, but for sure, um, it still has its difficulties. But what's still fun for me is going to the grocery store <laughs> and watching my kids in the cereal aisle and thinking, if only they knew about Weetabix. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. Jesse Ballard is a local childbirth educator, lactation counselor, and birth doula. In other words, all things birth, boobs, and babies. She is married with two kids and loves travel, international food, and being involved in local theater productions. In our final story, Carissa Benjamin thinks that she got lucky when a stranger holds the door for her at a pay toilet in Paris, France. Thanks for listening. My story begins in a, walk, a locked water closet in a bus stop in Nice, France. My boyfriend, Tim, is on the other side of the locked bathroom, and he is certain that I'm being electrocuted. He comes to this conclusion not just from my screams and banging on the other side of the door, but what he imagines are these rogue electrical wires streaming about, and maybe some flashing lights from, that are coming from underneath the door. Now, Tim isn't typically one to panic. He tends to stay cool in these types of situations. I remember when we first started dating, uh, he was the passenger in my 1994 
top-heavy Azuzu Trooper, and I take the bad corner of Fall Creek Road a little too fast and begin to fishtail from one side of the road to the other. And from the passenger side, he just calmly coaches me through it. Put your hands on the steering wheel. (laughs) (laughs) You've got this. Well, I didn't have it. And I crashed off the side of the road, nearly hitting a tree. After checking in that I was okay, he just sort of moved into action, like he always does. Fast forward a couple years, we're traveling together uh, throughout Europe for about a month. And even though I felt very prepared, you know, I read all of the books, one thing that neither Tim or I had anticipated during our trip is just how difficult it would be to find a public restroom. It was so difficult, in fact, that I actually began wearing this one particular black cotton, very flowing skirt because what it allowed is when we couldn't find a bathroom, and so we often opted for a public space, green space, or park, that I could very discreetly sort of squat, (laughs) use my skirt as a tent to preserve the modesty of the lower half of my body, (laughs) and use it to dab as well if necessary. Tim, being the person that he was, I think was even more inconspicuous than I was, and he was a big fan of the soccer squat. For those of you who don't know what the soccer squat is, you basically bend over like you're going to tie your shoes, but rather than tie your shoes, you first check that you're sort of on the uphill side of things, (laughs) unzip your fly, and try not to get your shoes wet. (laughs) So we had lots of opportunities to find creative ways to use the bathroom, and which I have to say is really funny because when I was upstairs during intermission, there were some ladies who were cleverly um, making their way out of the long, long line of the women's room. There was no line at all in the men's room, and and, some of them just went into the men's room. So when you have to go, you have to go. So another creative thing that we had done is we just basically tried to time our, our bladder breaks with food breaks, you know, so we can combine those basic um, bodily functions, like eating and peeing. But it was a little bit upsetting because at one time we had noticed that they'd actually added a charge on our food bill for using the bathroom. And we weren't really doing ourselves any favors because we are traveling in Europe. There's lots of delicious coffee. That's usually how we started our day at an outdoor cafe and a cobblestone road, drinking one, two, three cups of coffee. And then we were traveling by foot and putting in lots of miles. So we're trying our best to stay hydrated, drinking lots of water. It was also 2017 and the women's national soccer team was uh, participating in the World Cup. So it was easy to find an excuse to hop in a bar and support them on the television. So enjoying refreshing room temperature pints of beer. So essentially we're we're fueling this trip on a parfait of diuretics. (laughs) But to this point, no one had really been injured with this lack of finding a bathroom unless you 
take into our account our friend, our traveling partner who had the unfortunate experience of contracting a nasty stomach virus and had an interesting run-in with a roadside porta potty but that's not my story to tell. <laughs> On this one day, however, things are, are getting serious. I really have to pee. We happen to find ourselves in this industrial part of the city center. So I'm scanning my environment. Okay, no green spaces, no restaurants. There are these really large concrete and metal sculptures and I'm considering climbing in and seeing if I can find some place to seek refuge. But things have really moved past that point. I mean, my bladder's at the max fill line. I'm starting to walk really fast, but my steps aren't very long because I can't really risk like being like this because the pull of gravity I think is, is too great of a match for my pelvic floor muscles at this point. So, so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, just trying to keep moving, keep my eyes on the horizon, and there it is. Sort of this light in the distance, WC, water closet. And so, you know, we scurry over there as quickly as we can, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty excited about this, and I'm not gonna wet my pants. And I get there, and this particular water closet is coin-operated. And I, I actually, to be honest, I can't recall like if I was really disappointed. It was a problem, I just don't recall. Was it because I didn't have money or I was just really irritated that I'd have to pay again to use the bathroom? And so these thoughts are going through my head and there's this gentleman who's actually exiting the water closet or the bathroom stall. And he, I feel like he reads me. He sees the distress on my face, he knows exactly what's going on and he holds the door open for me. So I'm like, great. And so I, I sneak in there and you know, I'm starting to really slow down now because I know relief is in sight. And so I'm taking my time, close the door. You know, maybe there's some like Sade playing in the background. Not really, not really, not really. But so then I kind of like back over the commode, squat down, pull down my undergarments. And it's not even a moment after I begin in savoring, you know, the emptying of my bladder that confusion starts to set in. Like something's happening, like my feet are wet, but I know I'm not, I'm not outside, I'm over the toilet. I don't think I'm creating like a backsplash. It's just more and more water. And I notice it's like coming in from all around. And then as I'm starting putting that together, there's the commode actually backs back into the wall and lights are flashing. And so I've, I'm like panicking and this is the screams that Tim is hearing on the other side of the door. And so I'm realizing I need to make an escape. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what else to do. And so I, I rush over, maybe I pull up my pants. I make it to the door and the door's locked. And I, it will not let me out. And I'm banging on the door and Tim's banging on the door. And, and, and I'm like, you know, is this water closet possessed? I, I just can't figure it out. And, and then just as I, I'm just, I don't know what else to do, things start to calm down. The lights glow again. The water's like slowed to a trickle and the toilet comes back out. <laughs> and finally the door unlocks. I exit the water closet to an onslaught of onlookers 
and, and Tim there giving me sort of a once-over head-to-toe, notices I'm sopping wet. I kind of walk out in my chacos, water sloshing underfoot. And he just, you know, I, I'm, I'm clearly dazed. I, I'm confused. And he just takes me gently by the shoulders and, and escorts me out of the bus stop. I still can't get my head around what's happened, and I'm sort of mumbling like a mad person. Well, what just happened? Why did that happen to me? Well, I don't know what happened. And it wasn't actually until I needed to prepare for this story that I, that I looked into it. You know, what, what happened that day? And so I took, I took to the internet, as most people do in this situation, and I went to YouTube and I searched for self-cleaning toilets. Maybe you guys already knew that that's what happened. <laughs> But I sort of needed some confirmation about that. Um, The one question that sort of remained was that stranger who held the door open for me? (laughs) Did he know? (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Carissa. Carissa Benjamin is originally from Miami, Florida, and moved to Missoula in 2001, eventually making it her forever home, which she shares with her husband, two young children, and an elderly yellow lab. She works as a physical therapist for Missoula County Public Schools and moonlights as an ice hockey referee. She also owns and operates a mobile physical therapy practice where she enjoys working with individuals in their natural habitat. She also loves all things story. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org. Thanks to our sponsors, Missoula Federal Credit Union, Don't Just Bank, Belong, MissoulaFCU.org. Missoula Bone and Joint, providing superior clinical orthopedic care to their patients for over 60 years. MissoulaBoneAndJoint.com Access Physical Therapy Access Physical Therapy has an enthusiastic team dedicated to providing compassionate and comprehensive care to their clients. Learn more at AccessMissoula.com Missoula Broadcasting Company Locally owned and operating four stations, The Trail 103.3, Missoula's Quality Rock, and part of our unique Western Montana community. Featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music. Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want. U104.5 FM, your at-work listening station. And ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlighten Lab Float Center. Enlighten Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Gecko Designs. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at GeckoDesigns.com. Buildy Design, Montana stickers, mugs, and apparel with a twist. Etsy.com slash shop slash Design. Thanks to Cash for Drunkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashfordrunkersmusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events, those of you who download the podcasts, and most especially to the storytellers, Dick King, Ibrahim Mina, 
Jesse Ballard, and Carissa Benjamin. The next live Telesomething event is May 9th at the Myrna Loy in Helena, Montana. The theme is Getting Away With It, taking pitches for the June 12th Telesomething live event in Missoula. The theme is What Are The Chances? Pitch your story at 406-203-4683. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all of the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free and learn about upcoming events and ticket sales at tellussomething.org.